sermon, right? So with that said, uh, if you have a Bible, please open it up to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings, if you need a Bible, there's some uh, people that are going to be going around and dispersing those. If, if you um, don't have one with you this morning, we uh, just slip up your hand and they will give that to you. Uh, but we're in the book of 1 Kings, um, and uh, we will be reading and discussing and looking at this entire chapter this morning. So I'm going to begin. I'm just going to read the chapter and then pray. It says in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 17, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour and a jar and a little of oil and a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your word, grateful that you have not left us to ourselves to just wonder at who you are and what you're like, but you've revealed yourself to us in your word, and I pray, God, that you would speak to us today, that you would breathe life on us as a congregation, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would redirect us, 
Lord, in ways that we need to be redirected. God, we ask that you would glorify yourself in our midst in this time. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. I'm curious if uh, any of you have ever grown up uh, with an imaginary friend. Have you ever grown up with an imaginary friend? No hands. All right. You don't admit it. That's fine. Uh, What's the difference between a real friend and an imaginary friend? You might say there's a lot of differences, but at least one of those differences is that an imaginary friend never fights with you, right? If they do, you should get a new one, right? (laughs) See, an imaginary friend always does what you want them to do, and they never do something that you do not understand, right? In contrast, a real friend always acts in ways that are not in your control, right? Or they do things and are things that you don't fully understand. A real friend will actually upset you, won't they? They are uncontrollable, even if we try to control them. I I wonder this morning, if you're to be really honest with yourself, do you worship an imaginary God or a living God? Do you worship an imaginary God or a living God? Because if you're looking for a God who only does what you want, who never contradicts you and never challenges you or confronts you and is only what you want him to be, if that's what you're looking for, you'll merely have a God that you've imagined yourself. You see, a living God, by definition, is one that you did not make. Right? Therefore, you cannot control. He operates with a wisdom that you and I don't often understand. He surprises you. Right? He comforts you. He, he, he confronts you. And at times, he confuses you, and he will definitely contradict you. Won't he? Uh, Flannery O'Connor once said, A God you understood would be less than yourself. That's true, isn't it? Uh, we're starting, obviously, in a new place in Scripture this morning after we've been in the book of 1 John. And here in the book of 1 Kings and early in 2 Kings, we're going to be following the life and ministry of Elijah, which is a really brief one. Uh, it's really interesting, though, nonetheless, because although his life in the pages of Scripture is very brief, he makes a huge imprint and impact, really, in the, in the history of the world. And the rest of your Bibles consistently brings up Elijah. You see him in these prominent places, like when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, there he is. He's, he pops up, you know, and like, wow, Elijah's there with him, you know. But then you have the book of James, which famously says Elijah was just a human being like you and me. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three and a half years it didn't rain. So Elijah is iconic, but he's just like you. It's interesting. And here at the heart of Elijah rests one really strong overriding conviction that you're going to see in his life. Elijah worships the one true God. His name actually means, my God is the Lord. That's what his name means. Elijah worships the living God And his life and ministry is such that he's essentially drawing a line in Israel when people are following after many gods. And he's saying, who will you follow? Decide. Decide. Will you follow a God of your own making or will you follow the living God? And so this morning we have this incredible narrative that confronts us. But ultimately, I hope you'll see this story is an invitation to trust in the living God. That's what it is. So um, 
what we see here in this narrative is we see this living God, the living God's invitation. We see the living God's heart, and we see the living God's rule. This is what we see here in this story. So first, the living God's invitation. We see this in just beginning here in verses 1 through, through 7. We see Elijah goes out and is fed by ravens. Um, it's really important, I think, to see the setting of this story that you, you discover in the last verses of chapter 16. Just look at the description of King Ahab in chapter 16, verses 30 through 33. This is what it says about the king who's ruling and that uh, Elijah here confronts. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Debat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So just for reference, in the book of 1 Kings, we discover that after Solomon dies in chapter 12, Jeroboam rules over Israel. But there's also this king Rehoboam who's ruling over Judah. Okay? And Jeroboam is this fear that people are going to follow after Rehoboam and not him. And so what does he do? If you've read chapter 12, he makes these two golden calves. And this is what he announces to Israel. You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is what Jeroboam does. Does that sound familiar? Two golden calves attributing to these things that they just made to the hand of God as if this is what the God that delivered them out of Israel, right? He's robbing God of God's glory. That's what he's doing. He's leading God's people astray to worship false gods, imaginary gods, if you will. Right? He's, he's not a good king. Right? He's, a, he's a pretty bad one. All right? But Ahab is now king in Israel, and we are told it would have been a light thing for him to do something like that. That's how, this is like a contrast here, okay? a really stark one. Like if I were to feed my kids peas, and they were to just like grumble and stomach them and gag the whole time, and then the next night I feed them a portobello mushroom or something, they would say to me, um, Dad, it would have been a light thing, right, for us to have eaten the peas, right? When you, when you have to be fed a portobello mushroom, I'm sorry if you like portobello mushrooms, right? When you see the contrast for my kids, they'd be like, oh, give me the peas, right? The contrast is, is starking, right? It would be a light thing. So here's what we see here. This is the, the contrast. Jezebel has established 450 prophets of the god Baal who are actually employed, paid for in Israel. It's safe to say that God's people are in terminal decline right? For 70 years. Things are not good. And so chapter 17 begins with this direct assault against Baal, who is the god of the storm. He's the god who sends rain in their minds. And so Elijah begins with this bold declaration to none other than the highest authority in the land, King Ahab. And what does he say? As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, in verse 1, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Again, why a drought? Why, why emphasize that Yahweh lives? Well, God is actually challenging Baal at his center. That's what's happening here. Because in Canaanite religion, if Baal had the authority over rain, 
In their minds, the absence of rain meant that Baal must be absent. If the rain is absent, Baal is absent. And in their minds, from time to time, Baal would have to submit to this god, Mot, who is the god of death. And so if there was famine or a lack of rain, they're like, oh, Baal must have had to submit to Mot for a season. But someday he will come back to life and he will rain again and we'll have water. Okay? But now here we see it is the Lord, not Baal, who brings fertility. It is actually God's presence, not lack of presence, that is bringing judgment into this land. That is bringing about infertility. It's not because the living God has died. It's because he's present and he's judging. So if Baal is the provider of rain and God announces that he is going to withhold it, the showdown is on, right? The showdown is on. So God commands Elijah to flee and essentially hide by this brook, but more than just hide, in the midst of experiencing famine, God will sustain his prophet. So even in the midst of famine, you guys, do you see this? God is not absent. His word is active and he is sustaining whoever he wills. That's what God's doing here. Now, I think if we're being honest, it's kind of difficult for us to feel the hopelessness and severity of the reality of what's being presented here. We live in a part of the world and a point in history where the idea of famine doesn't land on our ears like in a lot of people's lives it has in the past. I mean, you don't go to Fred Meyer and the shelves are empty, you know? If you did, you're like, it's the apocalypse, right? I mean, that's what you would probably think. Like, this doesn't happen. Like, even if it's not you know, natural food or, uh, you know, organic food or fresh food. It's food. It's edible. It's going to be there. Someone can make it somewhere, right? Like we don't experience often what is this is actually saying. But imagine this. No rain doesn't just mean a, a worse fire season, okay? No rain means I don't have what I need to survive on a daily basis. Like famine is a place of desperation. That's what famine is. It's desperation. I'm just curious, have you ever been in a place of famine in your life? A place of desperation where you felt like you were just kind of in survival mode. You ever been there? Do you view those places that you're in in those moments? Do you view those places and do you understand or think that God is absent in your life in those seasons? Or do you understand that God is still present? I think that's the question that should be lingering over your minds at this point when you're in these first seven verses, especially, especially down through verse 14. Famine comes, Elijah flees, he's protected, he drinks from a brook, that sounds delicious, uh, but he's also fed by ravens that are commanded by God to feed him. So God has ravens do his bidding. Think about that. God commands birds and they do what he says. That's incredible. It's also a little gross, okay? Just be honest, right? I mean, even to an Israelite, a raven was unclean. Like, you don't have that category, but, I mean, what what kind of food is this bird bringing me? You know? You're told bread and meat. Don't ask where it's from, right? Just don't ask, right? This is the reality of uh, Elijah's life, okay? God is sustaining his prophet, and by sustaining his prophet, he is sustaining his word. In the midst of famine. This is not ideal living situations, but they're fine until the brook dries up because there's a famine. So what do we do now? Elijah's got no food. He's got no job. 
His raven pet's heads are falling off, right? I hope you get that reference. Has God's plan been foiled? Did he have a good plan? But he didn't have the, for, the power, the foresight to see it through. Is God scrambling now? Not at all. This is all heading in the right direction. The ravens weren't the full realization of God's provision or his ultimate challenge to Baal. Look at verses 8 through 14. The word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, dwell there. Behold, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. The word of the Lord is still active and present in Elijah's life. He's told to go to Zarephath. Where's that? Sidon. We just read about Sidon. Right? That's where Jezebel's dad reigns as king. God sends Elijah to the heart of enemy territory to dwell there. See, God has produced a drought on Baal's home turf. And how is Elijah going to be protected and provided for in a place like that? God isn't commanding ravens there to feed him. God has commanded a widow there to feed him. Of all the places that God could have sent him, he sends him to a pagan widowed woman in an enemy city. I guess these, these times that Elijah lived were very different than our day. That's hard for us to grasp sometimes. But to put it you, to you plainly, the words widow and sustained, like, don't go in the same sentence. It's just, it would be a bad joke in the ancient Near East, essentially. Right? Even the word widow just carries with it the idea of poverty and being in need. Widows in this day were not stringing together a bunch of part-time jobs, going to trade school at night to get a good-paying job and with some benefits or something like that. That's not their life. It was a dead-end street if you were a widow. It was, it was a life of eking out the barest of living. You could actually argue that ravens sounded more dependable for Elijah than a widow. Yet Elijah goes and sees this woman gathering sticks, and he speaks to her, and what does he say? I'm thirsty. She tries to get him some water. As she's getting him some water, what does he say? Feed me. Right? I mean, to have a stranger ask for some water is one thing. To have a stranger ask for your last meal, the first bite of it at least, I mean, that's like a pretty daring thing to do. And you might argue or think Elijah's just in some kind of mood or something, and you wouldn't blame him if all he's been hanging out with is ravens for who knows how long. But really, the narrator just simply wants you and I to see this. Elijah is obeying and trusting in the word of the living God. That's what he's doing. What's her response? Water seemed to be okay, but the food, that's another issue. Because what does she say in verse 12? What does she say? As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. She makes the same confession that Elijah makes. You're God. He's a living God. It's a statement. It's like an oath, right? She makes a confession that Elijah's God is the living God. But even though she believes that Elijah's God lives, she is preparing to die. Because in her mind, Elijah's God living makes no difference to her life. The fact that Elijah's God lives doesn't matter for her. But it does. Elijah tells her something. Do not fear. Follow through with this command of God, and God will take that final bit of flour and oil so that you can have some 
pancakes or something every day on the daily until the rain returns and the famine is over. What is actually being held out to her here when she is at her very end is the promise that the word of God is enough. Right? That's all she has to go off of. Nothing less, nothing more. If she gives God's prophet the first fruits of her daily provision as an act of faith, God will sustain her and her son through this season of desperation. That's the promise, but it doesn't make any sense, does it? It doesn't make any sense. It wouldn't to me. It wouldn't to you. I can't imagine it does to her. This is confronting, contradicting, and confusing, isn't it? This doesn't make sense from what we can see. This command makes no sense. I'm going to die. I don't see how your God living makes any difference in my life, right? This is how this works. But this is not an invitation for her to understand. This is an invitation for the widow to trust. That's all it is. It's not an invitation to understand something. It's an invitation to trust the living God. I mean, I was thinking about the other day. Um, the internet went out at our house, and my daughter, Isla, is like two, almost three. Um, she really wanted to watch Bubble Guppies. It's like her favorite show on the planet. She's obsessed, okay? Like, it's kind of out of control, okay? But the internet's not working, okay? And uh, so I said, I am so sorry. The internet's out. We can't watch Bubble Guppies, and she went, oh, bummer. Okay, Dad, whatever. Yeah, of course not, right? She looked at me, and she said, I want to watch Bubble Guppies. And I said, I'm really sorry. The light's on, on, you know. I don't even understand how it works, but I'm just like, the Internet doesn't work. We can't watch Bubble Guppies. She said, I want to watch Bubble Guppies. And I'm just going back and forth. I'm exasperated, you know, as a dad being like, I have no idea how to communicate to you. It's just, it's not a thing right now, all right? Like, it's just not going to work. But I, my ways, although limited, are much higher than hers, and I only have a few years on her, right? Only a few years. And somebody else come along and explain to me how the internet works, and I'm like, I don't know. doesn't make sense to me either, right? See, God's ways are way higher than Xfinity isn't working kind of ways, aren't they? Yet, we demand information, and the invitation is to trust. This is, this is not an invitation to understand you guys. What will the widow do? We see in verses 15 through 16. And here's where we see the heart of the living God. What does it say? And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. What does she do? She doesn't understand, but she trusts. She believes in the word of God. She trusts in the word of God. That's all she has. That's all she needs. And God works a private, very private, daily miracle in this woman's house. Private, on the daily miracle for who knows how long. God is providing for Baal's people in Baal's territory, and how he provides is easy for him, just as easy as it is to withhold. What's really happening here, though? Uh, Jesus actually brings tremendous clarity that we must understand what's happening in this story. Uh, When he quotes Isaiah from Luke chapter 4, which was our call to worship text in our service this morning, 
right? Jesus enters the synagogue. He reads that passage out loud from Isaiah. He sits down. He says that the passage he just read in Isaiah was fulfilled by him. And then this is what happens. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from Jesus' mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What happens in those verses that make people go, wow, who is this guy? Two, let's kill him. What is Jesus saying here in his commentary on our story this morning that would have brought people to this point. Because in Jesus' explanation of this story, what he's revealing to them is that God passed over Israel and he visited and helped a pagan widow in Baal's hometown. What they understand and what you and I need to understand about this act of God here and visiting this widow and caring for her is that in God passing over Israel to go to this pagan widow, This is an act of judgment on God's people for following after other gods and not the true living God. And they know this. But also, in the act of passing over Israel and it being a judgment to them, God is simultaneously revealing his compassionate heart for those who are outsiders. That's what this is revealing about God's heart. Think about it. This woman is poor. She's disadvantaged. I mean, women themselves were overlooked and often treated as property in the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, inheritance would pass through men only in the form of land. So this is why scripture is so big on people caring for the widow and the orphan, because apart from family and others providing for them, they had no inheritance. They had no survival in the end. This woman was also, you can go on, was a Gentile, so she's a religious and cultural outsider to the people of God. She essentially couldn't be, she couldn't possibly be a more overlooked and fringe person in society, yet God comes to her. This woman was an outsider in just about every way possible. She's a Gentile, which makes her a racial outsider, a pagan, which makes her a religious outsider, a woman, which makes her a gender outsider, and a widow, which makes her an economic outsider. God is the God of the outsider. Why was everyone outraged at Jesus' retelling of 1 Kings 17? Because they know what Jesus is saying. I don't save the ones who feel like they're strong and sufficient and don't see that they have any need. I've come for those who know they are weak. For those who are at the end of themselves. I'm not here to just improve moral people. I'm here to save and transform people who see their destituteness in their sin. This is a bombshell to any of us who feel like we're better than other people. That's what this act is. 
And in Jesus revealing what's happening here, we really get a glimpse into the heart of the living God. And this means that no matter who you are this morning, it means no matter what you've done, no matter how insignificant and overlooked you feel this morning, there is room in God's family for you. Right? You may feel like an outcast. You're not. Jesus came for people like you. Right? You may feel worthless, but the invitation is to find your infinite worth in Christ. And now, guys, if the body of Christ, if we as the church are made up of those people who knew that at one point we were on the outside of God's favor looking in, and by the sheer mercy and grace of God and his saving actions has brought us in, if that is who I am, if, if I was an outsider and God's grace has made me an insider in his family, Right? If that's who we are, then it makes sense that our hearts are for the outsider. It's the most natural thing in the world. Who you are and what you've experienced shapes your heart for people. This is why when you meet a former addict or something, they have a love and compassion for other addicts. This is why when you meet someone who has a heart for people with eating disorders, it's because they maybe have suffered at one point, or there's someone they love dearly that suffered from an eating disorder. When someone has a heart for those who have mental illness, they've, they've probably been in those trenches before. If you meet someone who just cannot stop sharing the gospel, those people often are people who live for a long period of their life without the hope of Jesus, and their lives have changed. They're like, man, you've got to hear about this. When I talk to someone who's making joyful sacrifices to adopt or foster beautiful kids in our city and make them family. I've talked to many of you in our church about this. You always have a story. There's always a story. This is the heart of the living God and praise him for it because if it's not, none of us would be in here. This would, this would be a great place, I think, to end the story, but the flower and the oil isn't the full realization of God's provision and it's not his ultimate challenge to Baal. Because what happens in verses 17 through 24? The son of the woman became ill. It was severe. And there was no breath left in him. That's interesting because this widow is opening up her cabinet every morning. And there's still enough flour and oil to make more pancakes. She's just trusted in God's bare word every single day. And still the same morning she wakes up, there's more flour, more oil, but her son is dead. I mean, how powerful it must have been to enjoy the quiet miracle of God's provision day after day. But then you face this. This seems to be an assault on God's reputation as being a life giver, doesn't it? God has sustained life, yet only through nourishment. Now, tragedy has struck this home once again. Her husband has passed away at some point. She's already experienced grief of that. And now her son, the one who she carried and went through you know, labor pains to birth, and she's raised the one who would grow up and probably take care of her, he's gone. We must even imagine here that the son is a small boy because of what we're told in verse 19, that she's holding this boy in her arms. And Elijah comes and and takes the boy from her and carries him upstairs. Okay? I'm, I might be weak sauce, but I, can't, I can barely carry my 10-year-old son okay? upstairs. So maybe Elijah's buff. I don't know. But we imagine this boy is, is quite a small boy. 
In one sense, yes, this is tragic, but this is also life as we know it, isn't it? I mean, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be his name. Remember Job? I mean, doesn't God have the right to take what he has given? If all that I have is because God has given it to me, if it's all by his sheer grace, then how can I complain? Or bring any charge against God when he takes something away that I wouldn't have ever had if he hadn't given it to me. There's that sense. But there's a larger difficulty here because back in the previous verses, God seems to promise to not only give them food, but to sustain their lives until the drought's over. But the drought isn't over, is it? But notice what the widow says in verse 18. It seems really odd and out of place. She says what? What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Why is she talking like this? Why doesn't she just cry? Why doesn't she just say, I don't understand why this has happened? Why doesn't she just get mad and and maybe ask God how it is that God seemingly isn't powerful enough to prevent the death of her boy? Why, Why is it that she feels in this moment that her son's death is somehow revealing that Elijah's presence and Elijah himself is against her? You know, why is it that her son's death triggers her sense of guilt and shame over her sin? It's almost as if she thinks that just by being there, Elijah has focused God's attention on her household in a way that was not helpful, that it didn't benefit her. Have you ever been there, a place like that before? You've tasted and seen the goodness of God. You've had moments where you've also tasted the bitterness of this fallen world. And you question like the widow, why has God sustained me only in the end to crush me? You've been there before? She's feeling in this moment that Elijah's presence, which in some ways has sustained her, wasn't worth it. The benefits of housing Elijah outweighed the cost. What does Elijah do? He picks up the boy, takes him upstairs, then identifies with the widow's accusation. He brings his question to God in prayer in verse 20. Do you see it? What does he do? He takes her accusation and he flips it into a prayer on her behalf. He prays from her vantage point. See, Elijah doesn't have answers, but he has the throne of God to approach. That's all he has. He has no answers to her question, but he has the throne of grace. He's not a magician. He's just a servant who can plead with God. What will God's answer be to their questioning? Will the son be punished for his widowed mother's sin? Is that why he has died? Or is this just the way life goes? What does verse 121 tell you? He stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him. Again, this is really curious and honestly a bit mysterious of an action here by Elijah, but for some reason we're meant to understand that this and what he's doing here is something that we need to know or else it wouldn't have been included, okay? Elisha does the same exact act later on in the book of 2 Kings for another, another small boy who has died. So what is happening here? Well, this word stretch in Hebrew means to extend yourself with your arms and your legs as is fitting to the word. I mean, like, that's what you would imagine, right? Okay? But think about how stretching, in and of itself, is the most vulnerable position. It's really a position of surrender, isn't it? 
stretching. Like if, if you're being assaulted by someone, uh, you don't go, oh, please stop. You don't do this, right? Like if you're being, ass- I, don't, I haven't been assaulted before maybe, but like uh, I imagine I'm not going to go like this, right? I'm going to do what? I'm going to go like that or something, right? You're not going to extend yourself, are you? It's a place of surrender, really. I mean, just think about cowboy movies or something when someone says, hey, freeze, you know, you put your hands up. You know what I mean? That's like what you do. So here, lying on the boy and stretching out himself, Elijah's identifying with the boy and the boy with him. The visual is that you cannot see the boy. You can see Elijah, though. Elijah, as he is praying these words to God, right? Let this child's life come into him again. Right? As he's praying, he's saying through his physical posture, look at me. It's like the person who protects another person in movies. What do you do? You make yourself big and you jump in front of them, right? That's what you do. That's how you protect somebody. It's a position of surrender, a position of protection. Elijah is essentially saying through his posture, take me. But God doesn't take Elijah, does he? But he raises the boy. Ian Provan, who's a commentator here, really helpful, says, It is one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death, but can God do anything when death has clamped tight its jaws and swallowed the victim up? He can act across the border from Israel inside him, but is there another border that he ultimately cannot cross? A kingdom in which he has no power? When faced by Mot, which is the god of death, remember? Must the Lord like Baal bow the knee? The answer is clear. God rules. There is no inch of all creation. There's not a place in heaven or in Hades where God does not have the last word. Uh, You guys know Bambi, right? Bambi was originally a book written by a man leading up to World War II. The story is really about death. And we watch it as kids thinking it was going to be funny, you know, but it's a It's a story about death. And all these deer, throughout the story, they they view the hunter as this immortal person. They've never seen one dead before. But they're the ones who always take their life. And one day, Bambi's dad takes him out in the book, takes him out and shows him the corpse of a dead hunter. And he says, see, even they are mortal too. Even they are mortal too. And the great theologian Bambi, in the book says, there is another who is over us all, over us and over him. See, Bambi teaches us a very important perspective about death because death is real. No creature can prevail over it, but death has a master. There is another who reigns over all, even death. That's why when John in the powerfully in the book of Revelation, when he falls at the feet of Jesus, when he sees him at the beginning of the book, Jesus says to him, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Elijah says, look, your son is alive Some of us may know more apologetics, philosophy, or theology than this widow ever did, but at the end of the day, we find that faith consists in leaning all of our weight upon the mere word of God because what's her response? She says what? Now I know. 
Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, that it is true, right? She looks to this moment that she's seen death and she's experienced resurrection to, and it's made sense of her tragedy. She looks to resurrection and she says, now I can receive the word of the Lord. She doesn't understand everything that's happened. She doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Her encountering of this resurrection, though, strengthens her faith in God, and that is enough. But there's a problem, though, you guys. The boy's going to die again. And so's the widow. Right? So it's really important to see here, guys, that this passage is really a sign passage. You're not meant to read it in and of itself. It's a sign passage. It's pointing you somewhere. Like, I've, I've never been to Crater Lake in my life. But since I was a kid, I would see the photos in a, um, a science book, you know. And you're all going to say to me, you can go there today, you know, whatever. And I get it, right? But I would love to go see Crater Lake, hope to see it someday. But imagine today you inspired me to go. And I hit I-5 and I headed south. And I reached a point where there's a sign that says Crater Lake 80 miles this way. And I got out of my car and I got in front of the sign and I took a bunch of selfies, you know, and I posted it on social media and everything. And I'm like, finally made it to Crater Lake after all these years. Glad to say I went, but if I'm being honest, a little disappointing, you know, you would hopefully think I'm joking. If I wasn't that I maybe need some help because we all know what the sign is not the destination, is it? I didn't arrive yet. I'm being pointed somewhere else. We aren't meant to stop here and simply have hope that if you died, God has the power to bring you back to this life. You're just going to die again, right? You have a bigger problem that created our reality of death, and that is our sin, right? This is pointing you in a different destination because the ravens weren't the ultimate provision. The widow's sustaining wasn't the ultimate miracle. Elijah's prayers wouldn't one day be enough. The famine and the drought that your soul experiences results in the, the greatest provision that you need. See, twice the question is given here, will the son die? And we're all wondering if you're reading it intently, you wonder, will he die because of the widow's sin? And when God raises the boy, the answer is no. Why is the answer no? Because one day God says, my son will die because of your sin. My son will stretch out and protect you. He will say, take me, not them, my life for theirs. My son, Jesus, will die for your sin. He will be stretched out. He will be exposed. He will be humiliated. His life for our life, his surrender for our protection, and not for the insiders who think they're fine and good and better, but it's for those who know they are poor in spirit, who know they are in need, who feel the famine and drought in their state of sin. God listened to Elijah and saved the boy when he stretched out three times. And the son of God, who's greater than Elijah, came. And while he was in the garden, awaiting to go lay down his life and death because of sin, he pleaded three times. Let this cup of wrath pass from me, that he was met with silence. But guys, just as Elijah passed over Israel in judgment, and saved the widow and her son, God passed over Jesus on the cross in judgment for your sin so that you could be saved. Do you see this? God passes over Jesus 
in judgment for our sins so that the ultimate provision of saving could come to you. I mean, the word itself, Zarephath, it comes from the Hebrew word meaning to melt or smelt. In the noun form, it's the word crucible. Zarephath is the place of the cross. It's also the first place God ever raised someone from the dead. The two go together. And now when the living God holds out an invitation for you, not to understand, but to trust, our lives experience resurrection at the foot of the cross. And when we stand with the eyes of our heart before the empty tomb, so that when our eyes see him, we declare, now I know I can trust you. The circumstances of famine that I'm in, it, it's not God abandoning me because he's given me Jesus, the bread of life. And now we say with Paul, I'm sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, things I'm facing right now, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is your God an imaginary God? Or is he the living God? Look to the living God this morning. He rules over all things and there isn't a square inch that is not his. There isn't a power that overcomes him. All things bow the knee to Jesus. He doesn't use his rule to abuse or destroy you though. He uses it to turn our hearts back to him to sustain us and save us. As the living God invites you this morning to trust him, to see his heart and his powerful rule. Let's all rise to our feet as we pray and go into our time of response. Father God, this morning, as we respond to your word, I pray, God, that you fill our hearts with worship of you, that you would bring us home to you, God, as we um, often look to only what we can see and not ultimately be grateful for the provisions that you've made for us in your son, Jesus. Lord, I do pray that you would awaken us to see your activity in our lives, your gracious actions in our lives, Lord. That ultimately you've, you've given us and met our ultimate need. I hope that need makes sense the rest of our lives today as we worship you. May it cast a different light into our circumstances. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.